0: With you, or you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back. Would love for you just to grab one, use it today, uh, keep it, um, read it. Again, as uh, Mike said earlier, we we value the Word. Um, So uh, that's available for you. Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. This is God's Word. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Would you bow your heads and again just pray with me? Father, we come to you and we ask for the aid of your spirit as we consider your word to us. We pray that you would open our eyes and minds and ears and hearts. Show us Jesus. Show us his person and his work. And may what you give to us this morning take root in our hearts. And bring forth fruit for your honor and your glory. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our heart be pleasing to you now in these moments. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's December and in a few weeks, uh, my family and I are going to pile into what we like to call the silver bullet. I don't know if you've ever seen it parked out front. Uh, and we are going to take what amounts to a 14-hour trip. Now, of course, there's, there's two types of people in the world. Those who love road trips, right? And parents, <laughs> right? 14 hours with eight kids. Let me just do, do the math for you. Uh, for those of you who don't have kids. That's close to... 14 hours of discontentment, right? I know who the parents are. There's 14 hours of this need, and then that need, and then that need, and then that need. There's 14 hours of hunger and thirst, the likes of which the world has never seen before, right? There's 14 hours of almost continual need to stop the silver bullet and get out and use the restroom, Fourteen hours. Kind of, be honest, kind of sounds like misery to me. But we'll make our way through those 14 seemingly endless hours. Because at the end of those 14 hours, we'll be Grandma and Papa. And then it'll be like those 14 hours never happened in that moment when the door pops open and hugs are just exchanged and smiles beam and love is shared. If grandma and papa's house were not at the end of those 14 hours, uh, I might be tempted to just take an early exit off the road into a ditch with the silver bullet, right? Grandma and Papa's house are the, the telos, they're the goal of those 14 hours and, and all that we have to endure in those 14 hours. And the promise of her smiles and her hugs and her loves and her attention are what gets us through those 14 hours. There, there's a payoff, there's joy at the end of it all. Right? And I think sometimes as we live life, the pain of our human experience. Perhaps it's the messiness of relationships or relationships that have been just cut off from us. It might seem crushing to us. Sometimes, at times the sadness of life's journey, whether it's the loss of a loved one or or something like that, especially in, in, in holiday season like this, It can seem overwhelming. On occasion, the frightening situations we encounter day to day, moment to moment, week to week, whether that's a health scare, political unrest, job uncertainty, financial scariness, some of those things you might be facing right now, that that might seem like a weight too much for us. And perhaps on occasion... The isolation of being a follower of Jesus in a sometimes hostile, but all the time dark world might be too much for us. So what do we have to help us through these moments, these days, these weeks, these months, these seasons? What's going to help us endure? To continue on in the journey to continue making this road trip? How can we endure? Is there a payoff in the end? Is there some joy at the end of the journey that renders all these things as significant as they are that renders them just seemingly trivial and meaningless? Is there a payoff? Is there joy? And I'd like to suggest that our passage today, Matthew 17, holds out such a hope. It holds out a future joy. So let's, let's look at it, if you would, with me. So Matthew 17 begins about a week after the passage we uh, looked at last week, where Jesus clarifies for his disciples his role as the anointed deliverer. And, and a week after his call to follow in his footsteps, the footsteps of suffering. And the opening verse tells us that he singled out Peter and, and James and John, his brother, to go up to a mountaintop for a retreat with him, right? And then, boom, right in verse 2, the action begins. Look at verse 2 with me. It says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Jesus was Transfigured. What that word means is as best as we know, his his appearance was completely and radically transformed. The the man the disciples knew and had looked at and had spent time with now was suddenly looked suddenly different. And we're given two details two, two details about how that happened. First, his face shone like the sun. And secondly, apparently his clothes were just beaming. They're white as light. So, what's going on here? What, what's happening? What are the disciples looking at? Well, I think later scripture helps us understand what's going on. Later on in the book of Revelation, John sees a vision of the risen, exalted, enthroned Jesus. And he records this in chapter 1. He said, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the shining sun in full strength. Right, John's seeing a picture of the resurrected Christ. The the enthroned, exalted Lord. That's who John's seeing. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, the pastor, the writer there, tells us that Jesus is the radiance, the bright shining reflection of God's glory. The Nicene Creed takes all this and, and says that Jesus is, is uh, light from light, true God of true God. Right? What Peter, James, and John were witnessing with the with the shining face, with the beaming clothes, the, the whole transformation of his appearance was a sneak peek right you go to the movies you go to see this film but before that film you get little clips you get a sneak peek of what's coming you have something to look forward to what Peter James and John are seeing is a sneak peek Jesus coming glory was being revealed to them on the top of this mountain So what what the transfiguration foreshadows and teaches them is is Jesus' resurrection. And not only His resurrection, but His return in glory. So though Jesus' life and and His ministry so far was was marked and and masked by His self-humbling, though He took the appearance of a servant, Jesus was and is the glorious Son of Man who will rule and reign forever. That's what's happening. And in connection with this remarkable transformation, verse 3 tells us about something else mind-blowing. Moses and Elijah appear, and verse 3 tells us they appeared talking with him, talking with Jesus. They're they're chatting it up. Now, uh, of course, we all know, or, or most of us, uh, may know that Jesus or Moses was the great lawgiver of the Old Testament, right? He's responsible for writing Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He, he took the commandments down from the mountain from God and gave them to the people. And Elijah, Elijah was a great reforming prophet. He was one of the first and, and perhaps one of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. So Moses and Elijah appear talking with Him. And their their appearance, Moses and Elijah, their appearance there with Jesus is meant to communicate to the disciples that Jesus' person, His work, His mission that He had just explained to them, His mission to suffer is the fulfillment of their work. It's what their work had been uh, teaching about and pointing to all along. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. This is what the Old Testament was all all about. Jesus is what is constantly pointed to as we read the Old Testament. In other words, the disciples were supposed to understand that what they were about to see wasn't some plan gone awry, right? Where the, the hero has some unexpected tragedy. No, 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 that's not what's happening. His suffering and death was the culmination of the work and the writing and the preaching of these two men. His suffering was the culmination of the Old Testament blueprint. It was finally happening. The long-awaited plan was unfolding before their eyes. I think this teaches us really something quite basic, something quite simple is that when we open the Old Testament and we begin to read, we should read the Old Testament in light of Jesus. As David Murray, Murray uh, an Old Testament scholar, his book suggests when we read the Old Testament, we should see Jesus on every page. Or, uh, some of you have the Jesus Storybook Bible in your homes, and as that book rightly points out, every story whispers His name. Right? Whether we're reading about a prophet. Or we're reading about the priests. Or we're reading about the kings. We see all the detailed prescriptions. For the sacrifices. The purity. And what kind need to be offered. We read about the tabernacle. And the temple. We read the law. What are we reading? The revelation of Jesus coming. Glory. It all points to him. So we should ask as the New Testament writers did how does this passage help me understand the person and work of Jesus? What does this say about my need for him? But the question is why did Jesus take his disciples up on the mountain? These three specifically to see this event? Well I hinted at it before, but it was so the disciples would know that this wasn't merely some teacher who was getting caught up in a uh, political or perhaps a religious struggle, only ending up in his death on a cross. Jesus showed them his glory so that they could be encouraged in the coming days. Because in the coming days, he was about to endure the most gruesome suffering that anyone had endured. He was about to bear the sins of of the world. He was about to endure mockery and scorn. He was about to be dehumanized by both religious and political leaders to the, uh, and ultimately it seems destroyed in his crucifixion from all outward appearances. And he reveals his future glory now to these disciples so that when they see this, They know that darkness has not overcome the light. He revealed His divine majesty to them so that they would be assured He wasn't some helpless, powerless victim. He gave them that sneak peek of His majesty so they would be strengthened for the journey. A journey that was tiresome, filled with trial, hardship, and suffering. That they were just about to endure when they stepped off the mountain and headed towards Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, we should find strength to sustain us through trials in the assurance of Jesus' coming glory. Right? We can endure. it's, It's tough, but we can endure the pain of the loss of a loved one. We can face overwhelming health concerns. We can bear the unrest of society. Why? Because we know that they will not have the last word. Darkness will not overcome the light. Jesus is now risen and exalted. And one day he will come to be marveled at by His people where he will rule and reign making all things new. He will judge and bring about justice. He will right all wrongs. There will be no more mourning. Neither will there be sickness or tears. And when he's glorified, guess what? He's going to glorify us. So, th- this picture of Jesus' glorification is o- almost a foreshadowing of, of what awaits us. 1 John 3 3 tells us this. But we know that when he appears, that's what we're talking about here in the Transfiguration. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's remarkable. That's remarkable. Or in the words of Paul in Romans 8, I believe it's verse 18, the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that will one day be revealed. And that's actually what this season of Advent is all about. We anticipate and we focus and we look forward to Christ's coming. In the midst of the mess of the world that we are in. And so we are filled with expectant hope. We are filled with supernatural peace. And we wait. And we prepare ourselves. And we look forward. We do mourn in exile here. We do. It's, it's a part of life. But we rejoice knowing that Jesus is the glorious King. Exalted for all eternity. Amen. Amen. The prospect of glory enables us to endure our present grief. Now, the disciples have just seen something remarkable. And and Peter is rightly overwhelmed by what he's seen. I mean, who wouldn't be? So, in verse 4, he begins to verbalize, just like, How overwhelmingly excited he is about what's happened. Look at verse 4 with me. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. He's right. right? It's good that we're here, that we're seeing this. This is awesome. And if he had stopped there, like, spot on, Peter. You got it. Boom. Nailed the test. Then Peter continues. Let's read his words. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, Peter's thinking here is wrong, probably on at least two accounts. First of all, he wants to make this event not just an event, he kind of wanna make he wants to make it permanent. He wants to prolong this. He wants to set up tents, shelters, tabernacles. He doesn't want to go back down and continue ministry in the valley. He wants to stay on the mountain with Jesus, with Moses, with Elijah. He wants only glory from that point on and forever. Right? Then there's probably a second thing. He thinks Jesus is being elevated To the stature of these two great men. Moses and Elijah. He says, I'll make three tents. Three tabernacles. Moses and Elijah were pillars of of God's household. And now, Peter thinks, finally, Jesus is being recognized in their number. Isn't this great? He's kind of lumping Jesus in with Moses and Elijah wrong. I'm wrong again. And we know he's wrong. Because in the midst of, of all this, these thoughts that he has, what happens? The Father, God the Father interrupts Peter. Look at verse 5. It says, he was still speaking. Right? God's like, Mm-mm, I'm not letting this go on anymore. He was still speaking when, behold, A bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father jumps on to Peter's blabbering, as if to say, Enough! Stop, 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 stop! Don't go any further! You're not getting it. And notice how the father speaks about Jesus in correcting Peter's misconceptions in verse five. He calls him, "My beloved son." Now, this isn't just some nice like, "Hey, daddy, son." I mean, it's, that's great. Uh, not trying to denigrate that when you when you have that in your family. But, uh, my beloved son, this is a royal given to the Davidic king. I want you to hear the words of 2 Samuel chapter 7. the, The covenant God made with David. The Davidic covenant. The Lord promises David this. I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom Forever. I will be to him a father. And he shall be to me a son. This is my beloved son. The father is saying that Jesus is the one who will sit on God's throne and rule forever. But then on the heels of that. Notice what else the Father says about Jesus. He says, with whom I am well pleased. Again, we might just think like, oh, proud Papa, right? Jesus is doing great, isn't he? But an ear in tomb of the Old Testament will hear a very specific reference here. Isaiah 42.1 says this, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights with whom I am well pleased. You see, the fathers just identified him as the royal king who would rule forever. But in in saying, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased, the father is identifying Jesus as the suffering servant. The suffering servant of Isaiah 42-53 through who would rescue his people from slavery by his death. So in these few words, he's cramming together, he's packaging together all this um, identity of Jesus. Jesus is God's chosen ruler before whom every nation will bow. And Jesus is God's appointed servant who will offer up His life to redeem people from every nation. Right? And I think there's two things at least that we learn from this. One is Jesus is unparalleled in authority and majesty and glory. We must not minimize His uniqueness by lumping Him in, even with Moses and Elijah. As useful as they were in God's plan, they are not worth comparing to the royal son. Jesus says, listen to Him, listen to Jesus. So in this rebuke of Peter, we learn of the uniqueness of Jesus. And by the way, it's interesting because Peter and the others, verse 6 tells us, they were cowering when they heard this voice, when they saw this cloud, as as they should have been, right? It's almost a Mount Sinai moment. But then verse 7 tells us, Jesus came and touched them saying, Rise and have no fear. Notice the next phrase. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus only. The uniqueness of Jesus. The unmatched glory and majesty of Jesus. He's not just some archaic prophet. He's not a relic of history. He's not one among a select few leaders. He is the glorious, life-giving king of kings. So we must look to and listen to him. He's not a self-help sage. We don't add him into uh, the, the pantheon of other mindfulness gurus. Right? He, he's not a Marie Kondo to get your life organized and, boy, just really bring some peace to your space. <laughs> he's not Dave Ramsey come to uh, get your financial house in order so that you can build generational wealth. He is the one who is exalted to the throne in heaven, who will come to judge the living and the dead, and who will rule and reign forever he is unparalleled in majesty, in glory and authority. Who are you listening to? Who are you looking to? Who are you being led by? Is it the, the glorious royal son that we see revealed here in Matthew 17 or just some other person of your choosing? The Father says, listen to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. We fix our attention on Jesus alone because of his unparalleled authority, majesty, and glory. But I think we also learn something else. We learn about the centrality of the cross. You see, the glory on the mountain cannot be where this story ends. Again, it's a, it's a sneak peek. It's a trailer. It's what's, what's ahead, but it's not where it ends. Jesus had to go to the cross to be afflicted, to bear the curse for people's sin. Staying on the mountain isn't an option. He came to accomplish the salvation of His people. To ransom many, right? That's why He came. He arrived to bring the deliverance. From sin and punishment that you and I deserve. So by not wanting to ever leave the mountain, Peter was still showing that he had no place in his thinking for the cross. He thought he could live in glory with Jesus apart from Jesus ever going to the cross. But the cross is central to life and our faith. There is no hope. There is no joy. There is no peace apart from the cross. Friend, brother and sister, do you have a a so-called faith that has little emphasis on the cross? Do you have maybe a version of Christianity that focuses on um, political or, or social transformation, but cares little for the redemption that was accomplished on that tree. Perhaps you embrace a Jesus. Who brings blessings. And health and wealth. And success. But you never really look at the cross. The cross that shows. The sinfulness of our sin. The cross that shows our need for. For a Savior, the the cross that shows us the greatness of our Savior, the cross that shows us the preciousness of salvation. Perhaps you have a theology of glory, but not a theology of the cross. That will not do. Hear the Father, interrupt your foolish thoughts, heed the Son, listen to Him. The gospel is Jesus and Him crucified. And the centrality of the cross is what verses 9-13 through are all about. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Now again, this, this might seem like a really odd statement for Jesus to make. I mean... Don't Jesus, like, is it by definition a disciple of Jesus, somebody who tells about his glory and majesty? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? Tell, right? And this isn't the first time that Jesus has told them to shush. What are we to make of this? Well, again, by this command to silence, Jesus is telling them that no one can understand him. No one can understand Him apart from His death, His burial, and His resurrection. His miracles and His teachings are not enough. If you, if you only embrace Jesus' teaching, if you only embrace His miracles, you don't get them. They're not enough. You can't understand Him apart from what He came to do in His suffering, suffering in His resurrection, no matter how highly you esteem His teaching, no matter how great you think His miracles are. So He tells them, tell no one till this has all happened. Now, the disciples, you know, again, they're they're confused. What's new with the disciples? Verse 10 says, the disciples ask Him, "Uh, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Now, the disciples actually are maybe uh, doing some good thinking here. They're connecting the dots. They're students of Scripture. And what they're thinking about is Malachi chapter 4, the the last chapter of of our Old Testament. And there in Malachi 4, the closing verses, Malachi promises that Elijah will come again. And when he comes, he will transform things. Things will look radically different. So they're saying, the disciples are kind of questioning what's going on. In the words of one pastor, they're saying, uh, we just saw Elijah, but he didn't stay and he didn't do anything. If he's not doing what Malachi said he's supposed to be doing, then what did we just see and hear? Are you really the Messiah? That's the riddle. Elijah's supposed to come. He's supposed to change things. And then Messiah appears. And boom. And in verse 11, Jesus says this. Elijah does come. And he will restore all things. In other words, yeah, 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 yeah. Malachi's right. Malachi's not wrong. But then he explains in the the words of verses 12 and 13. Read it with me. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him. But did to him whatever they pleased. So also the son of man will certainly suffer at their hands. Jesus is saying and the disciples get it in verse 13. That Elijah's ministry was fulfilled in John the Baptist. And he turned people to repentance. But they still put him to death. And that simply foreshadowed. What would happen to Jesus? The centrality of the cross. So, would Jesus reign in glory or would he suffer on a cross? Yes. Yes. It's not an either or, it's a both and. Jesus endured the cross and will reign in glory. In fact, His glory comes through the suffering. There's a long journey of suffering and misery that ends in glory. The crown comes through the cross. The path to glory, that road goes right by the cross. And those who embrace the cross will experience eternal glory. Some of us have looked for glory. glory, We've reached for glory by listening to, as one pastor put it, a tsunami of other voices. Right? We've listened to financial voices in hopes of achieving financial bliss here and now. We've listened to self-care experts. In hopes of achieving a, a, a mental peace and stability here and now. We've listened to medical experts in hope of having health and safety and security right now. And we've listened to other voices including our cultures which offers unending sexual bliss here and now. But the Father calls us to listen to one voice. Listen to Jesus, the crucified Christ, who died the death of God's judgment for people's rebellion, and the coming King before whom every knee will bow. If you want to access this heavenly glory, embrace the cross, trust in Jesus. Look to the person of Christ. Rest in what He's done. Look to nothing and to no one else. Embrace the cross to experience God's glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to You in the name and on the basis... Of your beloved son. The one with whom you were well pleased. Our Lord. And we ask that you would. Deliver us right now from. False hopes of glory that are held out to us. The cacophony of voices that surround us. Offering us. Glory now, apart from your son, apart from the cross. Show us how frail and foolish those voices are. And reveal your son clearly to us, make him precious to us. May we listen. To him alone. May we trust in him alone. We rest in him and no one else. Nothing else. I pray for those who are here who may be seeking joy, maybe seeking peace, maybe seeking bliss apart from you. That you would convict them of their sin, their self-directed ways, the rebellion. By Your Spirit, give them new hearts and new life to trust in Jesus now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.